You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Solari Gentles crossing the lines. And uh, we have Solari here, but we have to start with something other than the novel, Solari, because <laughs> since we've last spoken to you, we've heard so many other shows using a soft G, gentle, for your last name. We've been using a hard G this entire time, and we didn't even realize that we were different to everyone else. Tell us, settle the debate amongst us, which is the correct pronunciation? I don't mind either. Oh, come on. You can't say that. <laughs> it's too nice of you. You can't. Uh, this is like we're part of a mystery novel right now, trying to figure you out. You just won't tell us the answer. I I, um, I tend to introduce myself as gentle because people remember it that mm-hmm. way uh, because it's a word, but I don't mind either. If I objected to it, you would have known about it a long time ago. Okay, that's 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 good to know. I think uh, we'll stick to our guns and be different just, just because yeah. that way we're at least consistent, even if consistently arguably wrong. <laughs> consistently wrong? Yeah, that's the important thing, isn't it? All right, fair enough. Well, uh, we do need to get into this talking about crossing the lines, Solari Gentil. So I have to I have to ask uh, right before where where today's episode of Death of the Reader ends, uh, we actually get our first moment. You know, in the story, yeah, Madeline and Ned uh, they first talk to each other in regular speech rather than omnipotent narration, uh, which was kind of euphoric to experience. I've got to say, how much restraint did it take you to hold that first moment of of that real connection there until a third of the way through the book, Solari? Um. I'm not. I'm not sure. I was aware of any restraint. Uh, so, um, okay. I've been on this show a couple of times. So you guys might remember the way I write. Don't worry. We I'm have complete- a question about pantsing yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> because I pl- don't plot, I had no idea what was coming. So the story unfolds at its own pace, and I suppose. In order to be restrained, you have to know what's coming. Um, <laughs> okay. So I wasn't actually aware of any restraint as I wrote. Yeah, I guess I, that'll be fascinating considering the question I have later on. I'm, I'm hoping we can we can pick apart that idea uh, as, <laughs> as we get further in. Now, at the Sydney Writers' Festival this year with Candace Fox, Chris Hammer, and Tim Ayliff, you spoke about how it always feels as though Roland and your characters are standing just outside of your peripheral vision in your day-to-day life. Did figuring out a writing style for crossing the lines where you're actually putting that relationship between authors and characters on the page change Roland's position in your vision? Did you uh, did Maddie and Ned join him as you worked on it? No, 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 not quite in <laughs> in the sense that um, crossing the lines was a bit of a it, it's a book I couldn't have written if I hadn't written the Roland Sinclair series first, if I hadn't. Uh, come to realise what it was to have a long-term character. So Roland's been living with me for 10 years and with each book and with each passing day, he seems to become just that little bit more real. Crossing the Lines was my way of exploring what would happen if I actually let him come out of the periphery of my vision, if I turned my head towards him without actually taking the risk of insanity by doing so. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a fun idea, that relationship there, because I guess, you know, with Roland being there for so long and that relationship being so built up, like, is, is this almost a cautionary tale to yourself as well to, like, not do that years down the line? You'll reread Crossing the Lines if Roland gets a little too close? Uh, maybe, um, or maybe um, it was probably a testing of the waters. So my relationship with Roland is probably a little different mm. to Maddie and Ned's relationship. 
Uh, Roland and I are more like really good friends and he thinks I'm a little odd and I can see that in his eyes when he looks at me. He thinks I'm a little odd. (laughs) (laughs) Roland follows him around and records his life. So I don't know that we would um, plummet to the same depths that uh, Madeline and Ned eventually end up doing but it was an idea that I wanted to explore what if you just let it go and and went the whole hog with all of it you allowed yourself to fall completely in love and you allowed yourself to completely believe how would it end well I I have to ask with this you know this deep dive this kind of experimental text that you've produced we, we actually see a part of Maddie's struggle um, that we're kind of exploring this opening part of the book is that she she has expectations on her from her publisher and from people she does book deals with to continue her her Veronica Killwilly series, which is a fantastically like trite name. I want to say I absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, was the same blowback that she receives, you know, in her, in her story, Madeline's story? Is that something you were concerned about going into writing this book? Yeah, look, I, I think um, crossing the lines. Uh, was for me in some ways making a statement as a writer, and oh, yeah. it was is a kind of a, it was a kind of a, a statement for liberation because what happens when you're a writer is that the publishing world not intentionally it's not an evil plan but they do tend to want to put you in a box and they do want to tend to identify you with a t- particular type of writing and nothing else. And I love writing the Roland Sinclair series. I still get a great deal of pleasure spending time with him but it's not the extent of my writing um Mm. my writing career it's not all I want to do um and so I did have a certain amount of blowback when I said I wanted to write something that was more experimental um that was that was different in nature that was standalone that wasn't historical that was contemporary um and it's certainly this i suppose i could say it wasn't something that i was encouraged to do and it was something that was greeted with a a certain amount of trepidation uh by the industry and even when um crossing the lines went out it was sold in america first because america hadn't they they sort of had started to know me as a crime writer as a traditional crime writer but they hadn't become completely wedded to the uh, to the idea that yeah. um, Solano Gentle writes historical fiction set in the 1930s. Did the tune change at all when the uh, Ned Kelly Award came in? It did. <laughs> <laughs> it did. All, of sudden, all of a sudden, it was when are you writing another one like this one? <laughs> and, yeah. which, is, which is really interesting. So it is just an unfortunate fact of having a. a a series or a, a type of book that is successful or that is loved, that mm. people don't want you to risk wrecking that by doing something else. Yeah, I guess the next thing I wanted to jump into talking about, you know, wrecking things is that the writing style of this book is incredibly bewildering. The constant jumps between who is narrating and who is uh, on the page can come as incredibly blindsiding. For Herds and I, mm. this meant the book had our full attention the entire time as the text kind of forced us to engage or be lost. But I feel that it has to be too much for some people. You know, how how much do you feel you can give your audience a literature lesson before it's gone too far? <laughs> I think, look, it, it's it, not every book is for every person. And uh, mm. certainly Crossing the Lines is a more difficult book to read uh, because mm. you do have to pay attention. Otherwise, you forget who's talking. But I, I did want to – I wanted to – try and give readers an idea of what it's like to be a writer. You slip in and out of 
the consciousness of people. So, you know, sometimes when I'm thinking, I'm thinking as Roland um, or I'm thinking as one of the other characters and then I slip into me and then I slip back out again. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to actually give readers a taste of how jumbled and chaotic a writer's mind is. Um, but I, I hope I did it in a way that is um is discernible if you pay attention. So it's 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 one of those things. Some people hated it, some people loved it. Certainly uh in America it's been my most successful book. It's more successful uh sales-wise than all uh, all my other books put together. Oh wow, it's pretty good. <laughs> but then there are, there are people who uh, who will write the two star review on Goodreads and say I have no idea? Oh, can I can I tell you? Uh, there have been I, a couple I should of say those, yeah. we're we're breaking we're breaking the fourth wall a bit here because this interview is taking place <laughs> after the last episode uh, of the of the actual discussion on the book was recorded, and I just want to say after we actually uh, finished reading the book, I spent a whole day just going through with a couple of friends in a voice call. Uh, just reading bad reviews of the book and absolutely clowning on the people who gave this book bad reviews because I'm like, he just didn't get it. Like, come on, this is so obvious to me. <laughs> like, come yeah, on. Just didn't understand the point. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it was pretty pretty abysmal looking through all those, being like, I don't understand why this character did this thing. Or like, how did this reasonably make any sense? It's like, you did not understand the book. I want, I want to just email those people and just be like, I, I need to help you, please. It's such a good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I want to say from, from my perspective, you know, I mean, you said, Solari, that, you know, the book can be difficult to discern. But for me, I have a problem on the show that is well documented that I have difficulty keeping characters, like, separated from each other. I will think of characters less in terms of their name and who they actually are, like, who you know, who they're related to and more so to like their role in the story. Like there's the detective, the Watson, the thug characters, uh, which I love that you have some thug characters in this book that just show up to be thug characters. Fantastic. But I found that while reading this book, it was um, complicated enough that I needed to nail down those names in order to understand what was going on, which I actually really appreciate. So please, Make more complicated books so I'm forced to actually pay attention, Solari, is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> the the analogy that I gave to a few people when I was pitching them this book was that this book constantly feels like you are falling over into a strong breeze. Like, you need to sure. put your feet forwards in front of yeah. you, otherwise you just get a full face first. But, like, it forces you to do it in a way that was really engaging. I often, in, in short, I often talk about this book as my love letter to crime writing itself. Mm. Um, because, it, in a way, it's a deconstruction of the crime novel. Yeah. Um, and it's it's pulling all of it apart and, and not mocking it, but sort of having a look at uh, at how it works and why it works. Um, and, you know, I, I love being a crime writer and I love the genre, uh, but I'm also a writer and I wanted to give the genre something new, uh, something that hadn't been written before. Um, and so that's why I strayed into the whole um, murky depths of Metafiction, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's very bold, uh, and try to do it. Yeah, but you know, it, the 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 wonderful thing about those two star reviews is, generally speaking, I don't read them. Um, <laughs> Good. Good <laughs> yeah, because it's it's a scary place, Goodreads, and also it's a place where uh, readers are writing for other readers. They're not writing for the authors to read it. Um, so I try to respect that and stay away from yeah. it for my own sanity. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, 
a it's an interesting thing. I, I thought I had said everything I wanted to say about writing in that book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Until another idea occurred to me. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that kind of that kind of thing happens. I thought that you know uh, when I finished uh, crossing the lines, I thought this is a book that can never have a sequel. It can never have a it can never have a connected novel. Um, it says everything I needed to say about uh, writing a crime fiction novel in and of itself. And after writing a, a long series, I was quite delighted with the, the idea of putting it all in the one novel. The more you know, the more you know you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And other ideas just work their way into your psyche and just start to tap, tap inside your head until you finally give in and say, okay, I'll write you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in my mind, all the authors that I really resonate with, they have this kind of recursive way of writing their novels where they, they will write a, you know, a novel with a very clear point and meaning at the end. They have a very clear thesis that you're supposed to apply to your own life or whatever. But then the next novel they write is kind of commenting back on that. But then they'll have another thought of, well, hold on now, that thesis doesn't hold up under scrutiny either. Now, I, I notice in, in this story that in the chapter of the novel, Unnecessary Violence, we see Madeline feeling very guilty about all the violence and misery that her writing puts her protagonist net through in the course of, of, of said novel. Um, Solari, how reflective is this of your own sin and your own guilt in how much suffering you put Roland Sinclair through uh, in your own detective series? I need to know, Solari. <laughs> Sadly, I don't feel bad at all about Roland. Oh, no. That's awful. Heartless. But see, the difference between Maddie and I is that Ned did not sign up to be a crime fiction hero. He was a perfectly oh. innocent literary writer. Roland Sinclair <laughs> signed up to be a hero. He knew what the gig entailed. Okay. <laughs> and so, so I feel less guilty about that. in the prison. Than I Tortured, like. yeah. <laughs> that chapter was also uh, an acknowledgement of all the letters I get after every Roland Sinclair book goes out from all these concerned people who are upset at how much violence I inflict on Roland. Um, mm. So in some ways it was an echo of concerned readers as opposed to an echo of the concern of the writer herself. Before we close out this section Uh-oh. of the discussion, because we're going to in a moment go on to full spoilers for the book and that'll be in a, a later edition of the show, sure. I right now am about to pose a theory on the show. There are a heap of characters, most notably Ned and Maddie's editor Leith, uh, and this theory I'm about to pose is that both Leiths are actually the same character and that this is one continuity as opposed to two parallel continuities, j- just to kind of, you know, put an idea Thoroughly out there. ridiculous. And yeah. I-, I wanted to know for you as a writer, when you're writing characters like Leith who are in both fictions and inhabit both realities, do you write them as the same character or are there differences to each leaf that we don't really get to see on the page that kind of inhabit your head? No, they're the same leaf. And in fact, leaf is a real person. She's in my life too. So um, I got quite meta with this whole book and I started pulling bits of my own life and slamming them in. Um, So leaf, leaf Henry, and her entire family are real people. Um, and Leith Henry has been a friend of mine since we were 12 years old, and she's the first reader of all my books. Oh, I knew I'd heard the name before somewhere. It just clicked <laughs> in my head who that was. <laughs> After all these weeks. Um, so, yeah, so so while she's at my agency, is a, a psychologist by, by trade. Mm. And so I was just playing with a lot of that, and it – it seemed to me that if I was going to, I needed to anchor the story with one person. 
uh, that was common to to both their realities. And yeah. so I took a person from my reality that uh, in a way anchors me, I put her in both of theirs um, to actually make it even more meta than you thought. Oh, yeah, excellent. it's such a... <laughs> It's it's such an exciting idea. This this thought that's just recrystallized in my brain that you're using Leith to anchor the reality in the same way that most detective fictions would use a Watson to anchor to anchor a specific character who is you know just way too competent in the realm of of, of mere mortals. Right? You're doing the same technique, but you're using it to string parallel dimensions to each other. <laughs> like I love that. I love that so much, Larry. <laughs> it's beautiful. I had this. Uh, I had All this right. sudden thought when uh, when Herds was asking me about whether there were subtle differences in the leaps because I've I've just recently finished watching the the Spider Verse with my oh, with yeah. my son. And I was thinking, oh, yeah. does he think that there's a, a Hispanic leap and a, <laughs> and a, and a Jewish leap and, yeah. and an alligator leap? I guess. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe I'll have to work that into the next time, you know, when we cover the inevitable spiritual su- successor to crossing the lines, the mul- I'll have to work the that multiverse. into somehow. Oh no, oh no. So my, my only problem with that thought that, you know, there could be as many leaths as you want is that uh, currently we have three leaths and we need to move, here's, here's the thing, so we need to move into the real hard-hitting questions now that we're in the spoiler discussion. And while combing through your book, we notice a very peculiar pattern. Uh, the number three appears so many times, it's enough to make my head spin. Um, there are three matchbox cars that go missing. Ned takes the stairs three at a time. Uh, there's the three Leiths, the three riders with yourself, Ned, and Madeline. And most worryingly, Madeline cooks three sausage rolls for two people like a psychopath. What is the hidden meaning behind the number three? I need to know. <laughs> Tell me. I wasn't aware of her. <laughs> that has to be a theory. She cooks three sausage rolls for two people? Yes, for herself and her husband. So I have to know. <laughs> this is tangential, but like, is it two for her, one for him? The other way around, do they cut one in half? I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's probably two for, two for him, one for her, which is okay, the way enough. it works in my house because my, my husband's appetite is bigger than mine. So <laughs> that's probably where that came from. I was <laughs> not aware of the recurrent threes and it's scaring me a little now. <laughs> It, it was driving us mad in the second week. We uh, we lost our marbles a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, perhaps you're reading it a little bit too closely at that point. Oh, that's our job. Um, that's our job. That's <laughs> true. Um, yep. But uh, certainly I will go back and see if I can find a code. Uh, perhaps it was my subconscious, okay. or perhaps it's Roland trying to tell me something through this novel. Yeah, I mean, I was I was remembering the Star Trek episode where the e- Enterprise in the Next Generation gets stuck in a time loop, and Data sends himself the number three over and over again until he realizes what's happening. <laughs> I mean, three, three is a three is a fairly fairly recurrent number in life, though. It's a good number. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good number. It's a strong number in life. So. You know, taking stairs two at a time is, you know, anyone does that. Three at a time means you're leaping. Yeah, for sure. It's sort of, uh, so uh, it, it, <laughs> that may be the result of the other. I can't explain the sausage rolls. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have no idea. They could be, they could be vegan rolls. I don't know. Uh, tofu, tofu rolls. Anyway, look. 
have I don't to, know have to credit that. the whims of the universe in your next book. I have to wonder if maybe the true solution to the Roland Sinclair novels is hidden somewhere within the number oh, three. Goodness. But I suppose we'll have to we'll have to create the Roland Sinclair crossing the lines multiverse for that to work. I suppose um, we will. I suppose we will. <laughs> All right. The next thing I wanted to touch on is in the Roland Sinclair series, the experience of traveling is so distinct and captivating. As a regular visitor to Boston, I really enjoyed getting to take my COVID interrupted holiday on the printed page instead of actually going myself. But in Crossing the Lines, I have a very kind of two-dimensional vision of lots of scenes. For example, the one that springs to mind is the car chase that Ned gets into towards the tail end of the novel. It was really interesting to me, like, even though the detail is there and it's still written in a distinct and visual style, the, I guess, scenery that uh, I love so much about the Roland Sinclair series is overpowered so much because of how insignificant it is compared to the fact that it is Madeline's choice to put him into this car chase. You know, was this kind of an intentional effort to tip the scales of power in this novel? You know, how... uh, how does that kind of balance shift feel for you as a writer that's so often about that travel-like experience on the page? I think um, because Crossing the Lines was such an internal novel, I had to actually make a shift um, when I was writing it. Because normally, as you know, I write external novels and I write observational novels in third person. Mm-hmm. Um, but Crossing the Lines was quite different. Everything went on basically within someone's head. Um, and so I think naturally it just switched um, to what that novel demanded. And to me, for a writer, what's important, well, when we sit down and when I think of a scene, I have images in my head, uh, but those images are usually focused on people. Putting that whole sense of place and looking out again is something that kind of it happens later as you're putting down the words rather than you're actually thinking out the story uh, because it's almost like when you type in the words to the novel, you're standing back and you're able to see the scenery. But mm. when it is happening, when you're actually telling the story to yourself, you're focusing on what people are doing, what they're thinking, the movement within the scene. And um, that's how it works for me anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm sure other writers have different techniques. So I think with crossing the lines, I just gave myself over to that. It was a very quick write. I think I wrote it from start to finish in eight weeks. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> for how well interconnected the story is how how do you write it so quickly good grief i i will say i will say before you answer that question actually every time i mention solari's name to another writer in sydney they always mention how fast she writes i've mentioned it to journalists i've mentioned it to other crime authors i've mentioned it to musicians and it's always what they say <laughs> it's just crazy to me <laughs> well i think it's um it's one. It's because I'm a pantser, so sure. all that time that a, no, a normal writer spends or a plotter spends plotting happens for me while I'm writing. So there is no loss of time in that uh, in that space. And because when I write a novel, I give myself over to the way it naturally comes out. So the Roland Sinclair series is is written the way I naturally speak. So I don't have to actually. Think about writing it. I'm just telling the story. Uh, with crossing the lines, I was in a space of 
trying to give the readers access to everything I knew as a writer and everything that happened inside my head when I wrote. Um, and so once I got over the yep. inhibitions of doing that, and there were inhibitions because in in the beginning I felt quite embarrassed about this story because it felt a lot more personal than any of the Roland Sinclair novels. And um, so I felt a little bit more exposed uh, when it was published. Uh, but but once I had decided that I would do that, then it just um, – it's just a matter of just letting it naturally come out as it will. And I suppose that makes it quick because I'm not actively thinking about constructing and writing. It just happens. Yeah. I guess touching on pantsing before we wrap up yet, yeah, we've, we've covered well and truly in this interview, you're a notorious pantser, which, uh, like for the for those unfamiliar, for those who haven't picked it up means that it's flying by the seat of one's pants, making things up as they go. And the thing that, I was kind of curious about is that the end of this novel where Ned and Madeline both end up unable to write one another frames the other for the crime in their story felt both a fitting criticism of the experience pants has put mystery readers through where like, you know, Oh, come on. Why would you do this to me? I could have, could have figured things out if you just planted a bit more, which don't take that too seriously. That's just me having a go. But also I felt that there was a staggering inevitability to what ended up happening where they both rode each other into a corner, you know, in the process of writing, you fly by the seat of your pants. When in those eight weeks did that sense of inevitability hit you? Because I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I guess the thing I'm trying to pick apart here is every time we ask you a question about the way you write Solari, it's always the pantsing, but I need to understand how the pantsing works <laughs> because I don't get it in my head. When does this sense of inevitability come up or do, were you at the station when you realized you know, had you arrived at the end of the novel when that inevitability struck? Uh, I had arrived at the end of the novel. So I, I had no idea how it would end. That's crazy. And with every novel you write, you take the risk that you won't be able to finish it and that you won't be able to write yourself out. So it happens with every single Roland Sinclair novel about, you know, 70% of the way in. I think I've written myself into a corner. I cannot finish this novel. I don't know how to get him out of this. Um, and it's at that point where you've got to suck it up and keep writing. Mm. But because this novel was an exploration of the what ifs, came to, I mean, it naturally came to the end that, you know, the, the big what if is what if I can't finish it? What if I can't write my way out? What happens to those characters? Mm. Um, and so in a way, I whilst I didn't know that this was how the, I hadn't decided and I didn't know that this was how the story would end, the fact, the the idea of not being able to write characters, leaving them stranded, not being able to write them out of the places I've got them into, was something that I'd thought about before, but in relation to books I'd actually been writing. Um, so I suppose that's how Panting in this works. It's not really that we are working with a complete blank slate. We are working with all the experiences and the gathered knowledge of our lives. It's just that we are not aware of how we're pulling it together yeah. until it actually happens. I think I think sure. that's more or less the answer that I was looking for because I think like as I was getting, you know, midway through this novel, I thought to myself, there is only one way this book ends. Like it is impossible that these writers do not just put themselves into a corner and from which there is no escape because once one can't write, the other can't be written. And that mm. feedback loop has yep. to end things. <laughs> And yeah. like, I felt that that was such an inevitability. And to me, reading you, knowing that it was you, a pantser writer, 
I just, I couldn't picture how that couldn't be planned because my head just works differently. <laughs> and it's such an interesting idea to decipher, but it still comes across so cohesively because as you say, it's still part of those kind of internal ideas that, you know, the, the tool set that you use to do pantsing verb. <laughs> the pantsing verb. Yep. <laughs> Well, I, I think uh, I think it's not that pantsers don't plan. It's just that they're not aware of the planning that goes ahead. So they give over, they give the planning over to their subconscious, and they trust their subconscious to, you know, let them know when the time comes. It is a kind of a skill. Different people use it in different areas. I think the main the main thing you've got to have with pantsing is you've just got to trust that the subconscious will. Mm will do the right thing by you in the end, you know, and, and, and you do, you do trust them until, until the day will, I suppose, comes that they don't <laughs> and, and they leave you stranded. That's something that's so fascinating. I mean, this is why I love having, you know, authors such as yourself on the show to chat to, because you, you said you were kind of afraid when you released this novel, it was a, maybe a bit too personal, but you, you didn't plan the ending when you wrote the final chapter and said, you know, they end up, in this place of complete despair and inability to, to write and inability to like pursue any sort of action in their story. Was that like a scary moment for you when you realized, like, is, is that you thinking as, as a pantser, there will come a day when I cannot write my character out of the hole that they're in. Is that, is that something very visceral to you or I don't know. It, it, it's not something that I completely worry about. The, the other thing that you, the, the other thing is I don't see that ending as a, a place of complete despair. So Madeline, spoiler alert, Madeline's in a facility and uh, mm. and Ned's in jail. Yeah. But because of that, because that they, they have been removed from real life and all the other things that you have to do in real life, they can spend all their time with each other. And that's one of the things that I've always found about writing. The thing that is difficult for writers to balance is it's not the writing itself, but it's trying to have a real life as well. Um, a writer's, you know, writer's head is one of those places that a writer can retreat to for days, months, years, and be completely happy because there's people in there and worlds in there and um, and things to do and things that engage you. Um the challenge with a writer's life is trying to, you know, still come out occasionally to feed the kids or to feed yourself or, you know, pay bills or do whatever else that real life asks you to do. So in, a, in the end, yeah, uh, that, that, that finale just <laughs> removed them from the requirements yeah. of real life and let them spend sure. all their time together. That is such an interesting twist on the way I guess I'd be perceiving that because I I don't yeah. feel the same right as had I suppose. That's so so interesting. I love it. All right. I no, guess I'm going to have to to leave us on that thought so I can take some time to soak it in and think about it. Solari, thank you so much. Think about your own life. For joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on as it has been every time and we look forward so much to getting to cover more of your work in future. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to talk to you guys again. I, I just love what you do with the show. I, I love the format. It's something that I have never come across before in any other podcast. I think you've got a really wonderful, unique way of tearing apart people's novels. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's what we try to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness you are listening to death of the reader we are discussing Solari gentles crossing the lines and it is time for our debrief up next on the show stick around this is your murder mystery world tour on 2ser 107.3